Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now welcome back to murder under the midnight sun i hope you guys are all staying safe and able to keep yourself busy during this weird time of self-isolation. I know that I've just been doing a lot of sun tanning and reading, which really isn't that different from my normal life, so not much has changed. I will have a brand new episode for you guys in just a few days, but tonight I wanted to bring you a bonus episode. And this is actually a throwback to Halloween 2017, when I had several fellow true crime podcast hosts contribute to a special Halloween collaborative episode. And the topic was serial killers. So basically discussing serial killers that we've always found interesting, or in my case at least, the first one we ever really read about. And it's a nice long episode packed full of great content from some of your favorite true crime hosts. And I hope it gives you just a little bit of entertainment during these weird semi-apocalyptic times. And as usual, this episode is brought to you by my patrons. I love you guys. If you would like to join this group, simply visit patreon.com slash midnightsunmurder and you're going to get some bonus episodes, and I will send you stuff in the mail pretty regularly because I love snail mail. So give it a look if you'd like to join. And I hope this episode gives you guys some good entertainment. Happy Halloween, and welcome to this special Halloween episode of Murder Under the Midnight Sun. In this episode, I will be sharing several contributions from a wide variety of podcast hosts that were kind enough to record something for us. I gave them all the topic of serial killers and allowed them to use their creativity to come up with any variation on that topic. And I received a pretty wide variety of interesting pieces. And I think you guys are really in for a treat tonight. However, before we hop into those, I'm going to be reading my own short piece about the first serial killer I was ever pretty interested in. So the first serial killer I ever really researched was kind of an odd choice. When I was around 14 or 15, a movie came out called The Summer of Sam, which was about some people living in New York in the summer of 1977 when Son of Sam was out roaming the streets and murdering people. It's a Spike Lee joint and stars John Leguizamo, Mir Sorvino, 
and Adrian Brody. It was actually only the second movie that Adrian Brody was in that received any sort of, you know, wide release or critical attention. And I was totally in love with him back then. And I think it was mostly based on this role, where he plays a punk dude with a mohawk who also happens to be a stripper and gigolo when he's not hanging out at CBGB's. That part was not the part I was in love with. John Lucasamo plays a longtime friend of Brody's character whose life has gone in a totally different direction. He and Mira Sorvino play a disco couple with aspirations of making it into Studio 54. Their lives consist of dancing, drugs, and at least one abrupt orgy. Unlike most serial killer films, Summer of Sam uses the murders as sort of a background to the lives of the main characters, which is the story that's front and center. And when we do see David Berkowitz, we see his frustration at his neighbor's dog, whom he actually tried to kill a couple of times but was unable to, and whom supposedly told him to kill people, which he later denied was true. Mostly the film is focused on the deterioration of the main couple because Liquazama's character is a huge womanizer. In one scene, we have an interesting crossover of fact and fiction. We are presented with a pretty accurate depiction of one of the double murders, but the Liquazamo character is shown to have narrowly avoided being killed due to having been parked with a woman in the same spot not long before the couple was murdered there. The movie is incredibly atmospheric, and it really transports the viewer to that specific time and place. And you can really feel the tension ratcheting up, especially when you get to the point where we see the blackouts that occurred across the city and lasted a couple of days in July, and which basically led to all hell breaking loose as far as crime goes. There was just a massive amount of looting and arson and nearly 5,000 people ended up getting arrested. And interestingly, the blackout and associated looting would actually spur the rapid evolution of hip-hop after aspiring rappers stole equipment, which they later used to play their music for, you know, a wider crowd. Along with the fear about the Son of Sam striking again, The tension during the blackout was also exacerbated by an extreme heat wave that had swept the city. However, despite all the fear, there was actually only one homicide during the blackout, and it was the shooting of a teenage boy, and while it remains unsolved, it is not considered to be a Son of Sam murder. Fun fact, this film is number four on the list of movies which use the F word the most, with 435. The first two are actually sort of about cussing, and that's kind of like the point of the movie. And number three, which just recently surpassed this movie, is The Wolf of Wall Street. Second fun fact, the voice of Harvey the dog was provided by John Turturro, because of course it was. As you can probably tell, it was a pretty bizarre movie, Critical reception was all across the board, and the film was nominated both for real film awards, along with at least one Razzie-type award, which actually went to 
or Spike Lee was nominated for his acting quote skills. While I was probably way too young to be watching it at the time, it was really the first movie that inspired me to start reading about serial killers and becoming interested in criminology. At the time, I did some research into Berkowitz and saw that he'd also been a fire starter, a twisted fire starter, and that his explanation for the crimes really changed over time. After a couple decades in prison, he actually hinted that a satanic cult may have been involved. Oddly enough, the next serial killer I became obsessed with after him was a Zodiac killer. And in my large amount of free time, I developed a theory that the two were either the same person or somehow connected based on the commonalities between them. And with some deep digging, I saw that I'm not alone in this theory and that some people think that they were both connected to the same cult called the Process Church of the Final Judgment, which was based in San Francisco at one point and also has rumored ties to Charles Manson. That is a deep, deep rabbit hole for another time. But if you can't sleep one night and want to read some crazy theories, just look up Process Church, Son of Sam, Zodiac, and The Murder of Arliss Perry. Just let me know when you solve it so I can get some of that sweet, sweet unsolved murder money. (laughs) One last interesting thing about Berkowitz that I actually noticed back in 1999, he has a website in which he is basically discussing how he's become a a reborn Christian, and there's a big long apology from him and basically talking about his salvation through Jesus. And I'd be interested to know if this is legit or if it's just him trying some other tactic to possibly get parole someday. I don't know. Just look him up and check out his website and let me know what you think because it's kind of it's kind of a weird one. Um, it's never really easy to figure out whether these guys are lying or if he really is somehow reformed. And to tie in with this one, we will first be hearing from Stephen of the Trace Evidence podcast, who will be discussing the Zodiac Killer. Hey everybody, this is Stephen Pacheco, the host of Trace Evidence. I'm here to tell you about the serial killer that first drew me into unsolved crimes. For me, it was the Zodiac Killer. I'm not sure what the more fascinating aspect was. The crimes themselves, the way he taunted police afterward, how he would take credit for crimes that he didn't commit, or the fact that he was never identified. We know for a fact that he was responsible for the murder of Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday in December of 68 on Lake Herman Road the murder of Darlene Farron, and the attempted murder of Michael Mageau in July of 69 at Blue Rock Springs, the murder of Cecilia Shepard, and the attempted murder of Brian Hartnell at Lake Berryessa in September of 69, and the murder of cab driver Paul Stein in the Presidio Heights area of San Francisco. Each crime was committed a little differently using different guns and different calibers. At Lake Herman Road, both victims were shot, one while inside the car and the other while running from it. 
Zodiac later admitted to taping a flashlight to his gun to ensure accuracy in the dark. At Blue Rock Springs, he shot Darlene and Michael multiple times. When he went to leave, Michael cried out in pain, and Zodiac returned, firing more shots. Miraculously, Michael survived. In the case of the Lake Berryessa attack, a knife was used. Zodiac spoke to the victims for the first time that we know of. He had them tied up and stabbed them repeatedly. Brian Hartnell managed to survive and go for help, but Cecilia Shepard succumbed to her wounds. The death of Cecilia and Darlene versus the survival of Michael and Brian has led many to believe that Zodiac had massive problems with women and that he targeted them more fully than the men. Lake Berryessa is also the only time that we know of that Zodiac wore a mask, which looked like an executioner's black hood with his Zodiac symbol on the chest. In the Paul Stein murder, he hailed a cab, gave him a corner to stop on, and then shot him in the back of the head. After this, witnesses described him as wearing glasses, and it's considered likely that the glasses he wore that night he took off of his victim, which is just incredibly creepy. He also took portions of Stein's shirt to send them to the newspapers as proof that he was the killer. He would go on to claim responsibility for a lot of other crimes, none of which can be officially attributed to him. He really became active after the murders, writing tons of letters to the San Francisco Chronicle and the police. He took credit for the known murders and provided details only the killer would know, but he also took credit for other murders, suggested future crimes, discussed using bombs, shooting up a school bus, and he included ciphers in which he claimed you could find his name. One cipher was officially solved, his name wasn't in it, but to this day, the others remain uncracked. The suspect list for Zodiac is huge, with the most popular name being Arthur Lee Allen. Despite the fact that his DNA did not match that found on envelopes Zodiac used, his handwriting never matched, and in my opinion, his physical description didn't match the composite drawing. Many still consider him to be the prime suspect, supposedly even Inspector Toski, the lead investigator for the San Francisco Police Department. There are other names, Richard Gajkowski, Rick Marshall, Lawrence Kane, even the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski was a suspect at one point in time. It's a 50-year-old mystery that we're no closer to having the answers to. Over the years, a lot of people have claimed to know who Zodiac was, and in a lot of those cases it was someone's father or stepfather, but none of those claims have ever been verified. Several movies have been made, a lot of books have been written. One of the better movies is the film Zodiac, directed by David Fincher, based on the book written by Robert Graysmith, a former employee of the San Francisco Chronicle. I absolutely love this movie, despite all of its factual flaws. Robert Graysmith's hotly debated as reporting inaccuracies and connecting Zodiac to a wide range of conspiracies. One book, which I personally love, is called This is the Zodiac Speaking, and it's a psychologist going through all of Zodiac's letters and trying to work up a profile on him. It's really fascinating stuff. I've spent more time than a person should staring at the famous Zodiac 340 cipher. I used to have it pinned to my wall, and I'd look at it and try and crack it. Neither naval intelligence nor the CIA were able to break it, leading some to believe it's completely gibberish and that there isn't a real code to crack. It wasn't uncommon for Zodiac to toy with the police, and I'm sure he would have gotten a real kick out of sending a completely useless code for them to waste their time on. The Zodiac Killer goes down in history as one of America's most well-known serial killers, and yet ironically, no one knows who he was. I think one of the most fascinating things about this case is that if Zodiac had been caught, I don't think we'd still be talking about him today. He would have been just another psychotic killer whose name would have been long forgotten, 
But it's the brutality of his crimes, juxtaposed against the anonymity of his identity, that makes him live on in some way. I know for me, it's the unsolved crimes that really haunt me, and the Zodiac Killer is an enigma for which we may never have an answer. Thousands of cops and private investigators and online researchers have tried to crack this case, and there are so many theories out there ranging from totally logical to completely insane, and yet we don't know anything new. If they ever manage to break this case, it'll be a hell of an accomplishment. It's been nearly 50 years since his first attack, and the likelihood that he's still alive is pretty slim. One of the questions almost as haunting as to why he started killing in the first place is why did he stop killing? In terms of crimes, behavior, psychology, and mystery, the Zodiac Killer has pieces of all of that. It's a hell of a rabbit hole if you start to dig into it. Before you know it, you're going to be in over your head and just completely overwhelmed. For me, the Zodiac Killer introduced me to the world of true crime, and to this day, I still go through cycles a couple times a year where I look at the evidence, I stare at the ciphers, I watch the movies and read the books, and I let it all sink into my head, hoping that some connection can be made. But there never is. Every time somebody makes a claim about his identity, I follow the story and study the details, but it just never adds up. The Zodiac Killer remains unidentified, and probably forever will. I hope one day we might get some answers, but until then, I'll keep digging like thousands of others. I want to thank Ariel for giving me the opportunity to discuss my obsession, I mean interest, in the Zodiac Killer. You can find me every week in a new episode of Trace Evidence, where I cover unsolved murders and missing persons cases. The podcast is available through iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and more. I've got a YouTube channel, a Twitter, at TraceEvPod, and a Facebook group you can find by searching for Trace Evidence. Thanks for listening, and try not to become obsessed like I am. And just to sort of add on to that, uh, because I did a lot of research about Zodiac as well, I have a fun fact about Dave Toski, the SFPD inspector involved in the Zodiac uh, case. He was actually the inspiration for Harry Callahan from the Dirty Harry movies. And in the first movie, Harry is trying to track down a mysterious killer named the Scorpio Killer, which was, of course, based on the Zodiac. And in the 2007 Zodiac movie, Toski is portrayed by Mark Ruffalo. And in the movie, he goes to see the movie Dirty Harry. So essentially, when the real Dave Toski went to the Zodiac premiere, for which he was a technical advisor, he was watching a movie about himself in which he goes to see a movie about himself. Inception? Interestingly, he was also the inspiration for the Steve McQueen character, Bullet. I still haven't confirmed if he was the inspiration for John McClane, but I'm going to guess that he was. Hey, Ariel, it's Jen and Lindsay here from the Corpus Delicti podcast. Hey, hey. And we were going to tell you about some of the serial killers that we've found kind of intriguing. Jen, you want to go first? Yeah, mine is actually going to be, dun, 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 the Zodiac Killer, just because it was just so crazy um, from the Bayside area. He left, like, mysteries and codes for everyone to kind of try to solve out. So he definitely was one of those. He wanted everyone to know how smart he was, but it just made him look that much more 
crazy. Does that make sense? Yeah. So yeah. I think they he claimed 37, but the n- newspapers only claimed seven. So the case file's still open. So I think that's what gets me so intrigued by it because he could still be out there. Yeah. So that's mine. Uh, Lindsay, what's yours? Mine is a little bit of a lesser known one. It's Donald Leroy Evans because he he committed his murders in or one of his murders in my hometown, and he escaped from prison when I was a little girl, which was three miles from my house. And I completely freaked out, had to go see a school counselor, would not go out in public until he was caught, and is probably the reason I'm such a true crime fan today. <laughs> but he he had three known victims, one of which was a 10-year-old little girl, but he claimed up to 60 But they strongly suspect him in a total of 12. They don't think he actually did the full 60, but they do think it was higher than what he was actually charged for. And he kind of went across the country abducting women and killing them at rest stops. And then he escalated, killed the little girl, and that's when it kind of all fell apart. So that one's kind of personal for me. So that's the ones that we chose for you. Good luck with your Halloween episodes. You're doing an awesome job. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Thank you so much for your contributions, ladies. I actually had never heard of Donald Leroy Evans until you discussed him on your own podcast. And as someone that uh, has lived in the same neighborhood as a serial killer, I can definitely understand the creep factor on that. And he's the reason that my mom is so paranoid about rest stops when we're on a road trip. Next up, we have Rachel from Yours and Murder to discuss everyone's favorite murder mansion owning Casanova. Hi, everybody. This is Rachel from the podcast Yours and Murder. When I was asked to talk a little bit about serial killers, I originally had to think of which one. I wanted to do something local to me, but I live in Illinois, so there's a lot of serial killers in Illinois. It was even a point when there was a Criminal Minds episode about a copycat killer that Chicago was probably where he'd end up eventually. Of course, everybody knows about John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown, which is probably one of the more terrifying serial killers to me because clowns are terrifying. However, my personal favorite, if you can use such a word, serial killer in Illinois is H.H. Holmes. He was the killer who had the murder castle at the World's Fair. Or did he? When we covered him as the first case on our podcast, we found out that a lot of information about Holmes was yellow journalism and speculation, which is really disappointing because he was a really crazy character, but studying both sides of Holmes will tell you a lot. The newspapers made stuff up to sell papers, and Holmes himself thought that it was cool to be more notorious than he needed to be. So the office building he had was turned into a murder castle by the papers, when probably most of it wasn't used like that. But 
When has the truth stopped a good Chicago story? I mean, we have the goat, we have Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Why can't we also have a murder castle? I actually was in a play about H.H. Holmes in college. I was one of his victims of the murder castle. This was before I knew that a lot of it was bunk. But I was asphyxiated, which is really hard to figure out how to do on stage when you also have two quick changes. Anyway, I hope to one day take a Devil in the White City tour, which there are in Chicago. Like I said, when has the truth ever stopped a Chicago story? But I also met the author of Devil in the White City, who is the one who brought the story of H.H. Holmes to a wider audience. And if you have a chance to meet Eric Larson, do. He is a very funny man. Also, an honorable mention, he wasn't a serial killer, but a mass murderer, but... If you haven't ever heard of Richard Speck and the crime of the century, if you want a good Chicago story, look into that one. It's it's scary. Well, thank you for letting me participate in this program. And until next time, I am yours in murder. Thank you so much, Rachel. I'm actually pretty jealous of you meeting Eric Larson. Devil in the White City was probably the most literary uh, true crime book I've ever read. It was just exquisitely written, and I'm a research nerd, so I love random information, so I even enjoyed the architecture uh, sections, which a lot of people seem to have hated. But thank you so much. I prefer to think of him as a murder castle man in all his glory, but... Yeah, they probably made up a lot of shit. Next up, we have a submission from a newer true crime host, Minna from the True Crime Finland podcast, which also discusses murders under the midnight sun. So we've got that in common. Hello, everyone. My name is Minna, and I host a show called True Crime Finland. It's about Finnish crimes and criminals. I'm Finnish, so I obviously did not grow up in the English-speaking world, even though it's mandatory for us to learn the language from a young age. I feel like even if you're not interested in crime cases or true crime, some cases, mostly the ones that have shaken up your community or your country in one way or another, will just be engraved in your psyche, or you will just know about them automatically without really even doing any research. When you grow up in a specific country and community, you know what goes on around you. So, for a person who has grown up in the English-speaking world, for example, the U.S., names like Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, or the Boston Strangler are definitely at least familiar in some way. For me, though, if you had asked me a few years ago who Ted Bundy was, I would have looked at you with question marks in my eyes. But then again, I'm more familiar with Finnish criminals, and was even before I ever started listening to true crime or working on my podcast. There was a very famous case in Finland about a pedophile who killed two eight-year-old girls, and even though all of that happened in the 80s when I wasn't even born yet, I knew about this case from a very young age. It was like this guy's name was, and still is to some extent, attached to the word pedophile. 
So, what actually led me to find out more about notorious criminals and especially serial killers in the English-speaking world, specifically in the US, was a TV show called American Horror Story. One of the seasons, I think it was called Hotel, included an episode with some references to very well-known serial killers. However, at the time when I was watching the show, I didn't really understand these references. Somehow it seemed like some of it was related to true events though, and I got more and more curious. I googled the show, and that's how I found out who these people were, and voila, an addiction was born, more or less. I was especially interested in Aileen Warnos, who was depicted by Lily Rabe in the show. For some reason, she fascinates me, not the least because her mother was actually Finnish-American and so she had some Finnish blood in her. I feel like her life was very rough, which of course does not justify her actions, but her past does explain to some extent who she became. She never knew her father, her mother abandoned her and her brother and gave them out to the grandparents. Her grandfather ended up abusing her and Aileen got pregnant when she was only 14. She gave the baby out for adoption, dropped out of school, and eventually her grandfather threw her out of the house when she was 15. She then started supporting herself with sex work. She ended up murdering seven men and claiming all of these were self-defense as the men had raped or tried to rape her. Whether this is true or not, it seems to me she was somewhat, I don't know, somewhat maybe desperate, longing for someone to notice her or pay attention to her. Her death was also tragic in a way, as she was executed for her crimes that she still claimed to be self-defense. We don't have the death penalty in Finland, and the sentences are quite lenient most of the time, so sometimes I feel a bit taken aback when I hear sentences involving the death penalty or life in prison, which actually means life in prison. Just to clarify, it's approximately 14 years here in Finland. All in all, Alien Warnos keeps being a subject of interest for me. I've probably listened to all the true crime podcast episodes there are about her, and anytime a new one comes out, I listen to it. Overall, I'm quite interested in female serial killers and why they end up killing. Another so-called obsession of mine is a Finnish serial killer called Aino Nykopkoski. She is, or was, a practical nurse who murdered who knows how many elderly people she was taking care of, usually by giving them an overdose of benzodiazepines. This case is still fairly recent, as she got caught in 2009 and was sentenced to life in prison first by the district court in 2010 and then by the Court of Appeals in 2012. The whole case is very sad, as many of the patients had tried to tell other nurses and doctors what was going on because they were suspicious of Nukob, but no one really took their allegations seriously as these were older people. Some of the doctors chalked the claims up to dementia or other memory-related illnesses. 
Nuka was eventually diagnosed with an antisocial personality disorder, including psychopathic traits. And I feel like this is accurate when you listen to interviews she did after getting caught. I did an episode on her and watched an interview and some documentaries for it. Nico keeps claiming she never did anything wrong and that she was only ever trying to help. To me, she just always seemed like a very cold and a calculated person, and this is also what makes her interesting in a way. What worries me though is that she will eventually be freed from prison, as life imprisonment in Finland is approximately 14 years, give or take, as I already mentioned. I do hope she does not get pardoned anytime soon and gets treatment in prison because I think that that's what she needs. It just seems like she's somehow not in touch with reality. For her to claim that she did not do anything wrong when the evidence in the case is very strong is just kind of bizarre. Aileen also claimed self-defense, but she did admit to her actions unlike Nukob. To me, Eileen does not seem like a really cold person either, which separates these two cases in my mind. So, both Eileen Wornos and Aino Nukop are interesting characters, but for very different reasons. I don't know if sympathy is the right word, but I feel something like that for Eileen. As I said earlier, I don't accept her crimes and how she dealt with things, but I do think her circumstances somewhat drove her to do what she did. On the other hand, I don't feel any sympathy whatsoever for Aino Nukop. She deliberately chose to murder elderly weak people who had no chance of defending themselves. I do hope she will someday own up to what she did, but I'm pretty sure that will not happen as she has been so adamant about not doing anything wrong. So, those were my two cents. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much, Mina. I appreciate your contribution, especially because I don't think I could have named a Finnish murderer before ever listening to your show. So it's definitely all new content to probably most Americans and definitely a welcome addition to the true crime genre. So thank you and a welcome to the true crime family. Our next submission comes from a couple of sassy and hilarious ladies from across the pond. They are Georgie and Kate from Nothing Rhymes With Murder. Recording. Hello. <laughs> Hello, everyone. This is Georgie and Kate from Nothing Rhymes With Murder. Murder. Um, we have been asked by the lovely Ariel from mm-hmm. Murder Hi. the Sun. Hey, girl. Hey, girl. Um, to just chat about our favorite serial killers. Mm-hmm. It's what we do best. Well, quite. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, we decided to look back at some of our faves from our episodes. Yeah. To see best and the worst of who we've spoken about so far really. yeah because i guess actually weirdly for both of us we don't have we, we were both saying we don't have like that one serial killer mm-hmm. that was like the big one that like set everything off yeah it's more just like fascination a in general of horror mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so we figured we might as well 
just jog our memories on our most recent cases yeah and then feel free to go back and listen to our episodes if you feel like hearing about the whole story in depth because we feel like these two are quite uh they're <laughs> dramatic ones aren't they yeah they're, they're like dramatic but there's an element of lol yes which is basically our More podcast <laughs> in a dramatic and lol <laughs> So my one is, she is a lady from Italy called Leonardo Cianciulli. um, And she is better known as the soap maker of Correggio. Oh, girl. Should give you some idea into who she is as a human. I don't think murder and soap are ever a great combo. Mm, Or are they? Mm. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So Leonardo um, murdered three women in Correggio between 1939 and 1940. And what do you think she turned them into, George? Oh, I With a name like this. <laughs> Listen, it wasn't just soap. It was mother freaking tea cakes as well. <sighs> so she turned her victims into soap and tea cakes. She had a, I mean, a fully planned out recipe. Gross. Grim. She basically enticed these poor women in her village that came to her for advice really Mm -hmm. she was seen as a kind of um not like well some of the articles say fortune teller but mainly just seen i i reckon they just came to her as like an older woman that just knew what she was talking about a confidant yeah in the area that was like yeah i'll give you some advice come into my shop nothing bad will happen little did faustina setti Francesca Suavi and Virginia Cacioppo. You're welcome for the pronunciations. (laughs) Pretty sure I nailed those all. (laughs) The great pronunciation, can you tell? So they were her three major victims and they all came to her for advice and they got beaten, drugged, and then turned eventually into soap and tea cakes. And then she fed, like sold and fed the tea cakes to her neighbours neighbors and not only that her and her son ate them that's what's so fucked up it's not like oh i'm feeding he's like oh no mm, tea cakes i'll try one her whole i feel like her whole internal phrase was waste not want not (laughs) i imagine she probably used the soap as well oh my god gross yeah showering with your murder soap yeah those bodies are on your bodies (laughs) (laughs) your bodies on my bodies grim <laughs> um that's mine in a nutshell was that too long no 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 that was fine nailed was it perfect. yeah so if you want to hear more about this crazed soap tea baking yeah. monster episode three it's episode Italy. Three. well done mm-hmm. episode mm-hmm. three yeah check it out mm-hmm. um so i'm going to tell you look i'm sure everyone else <laughs> has submitted some really depressing uh serial killers so i'm going to go with a bit more of a lol one Yay. i mean i say lol like there were still victims and that's horrendous obviously we're laughing at him though not but yeah so i'm going to tell you about carol cott (laughs) oh carol Carol. (laughs) um otherwise known as the vampire of kakoff who was a polish serial killer Mm -hmm. he basically he seemed to like choose all his victims completely at random so carol aka the vampire of kakoff he attacked for the first time in September 1964 at the young age of 17. The victim was an elderly woman who he stabbed in a church. Um, He basically attacked her when she was kneeling down to pray, but she survived. And then he made a second attempt shortly after 
Afterwards, on the 23rd of September, where he spotted another elderly woman leaving a tram Ugh. and stabbed her in the back again and was like, nailed it this time. <laughs> and then, Kel surprise, she also survived. Mm-hmm. And then, sadly, six days later, on the 29th of September, he also stabbed another elderly woman who he spotted near a church and basically followed her down the street where he stabbed her to death, driving the knife from behind and aiming at the heart. Asshole. He then... And then, unfortunately, his second successful attempt was on the 13th of February, 1966, where he stabbed to death an 11-year-old boy um, who was basically tobogganing on a hill, which makes me so sad, because tobogganing is, like, the most purest... And like innocent of activities, yeah. I feel. And sounds so fun. Exactly. Um, again, he stabbed them, uh, him from behind because he's a fucking coward mm-hmm. um, and killed this young boy. But then in April 1966, he also then attempted to murder an eight year old girl. He grabbed her and dealt eight stab wounds to the stomach, chest, and back. But the girl managed to get home and was taken to hospital where she survived. Ugh, amazing. He also basically tried to kill people by poisoning. He bought arsenic and stuff and basically went around like... This is the most lulled. <laughs> he would like just put some arsenic in beer. He took a bottle of vinegar from the counter and like put arsenic in that and just like put it back and was like watching it like, oh my God. Just watching and waiting. everyone. <laughs> um, but basically no one used it. And he, he generally he used to like just leave open bottles of beer and like drinks and stuff with arsenic in public hoping that someone would drink it but they were like obviously not yeah and garbage basically people and drinking beer from before wasn't it the people that um ever did drink it were like ew this tastes weird yeah like, i was gonna say so he once poured like loads of arsenic into one of his schoolmates drinks and was like oh my god have a sip and his yeah. friend was like what the fuck is this it smells disgusting like arsenic no, thank you <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's basically carol he Sadly, was successful twice, but generally was a bumbling fucking idiot. Even to the point where he wasn't he the one where he like held up his best mate who like laughed at him and was like, put me down, Carol. Yes, there's a <laughs> whole a other side story where his, he used to just say all this weird stuff with his friend, this female friend, mm-hmm. and would kind of eventually try and threaten her. She basically laughed it off because he was so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to agree, basically. Uh, well, yeah, quite. Me too. So eventually he was charged with two murders and 10 attempted murders and four acts of arson, basically diagnosed as a psychopath um, and supposedly had really weird like inclinations from when he was younger, um, like watching pigs being slaughtered and stuff like that and would like read anatomy books and was basically like a baby, a budding baby serial killer. Mm-hmm. But he just got caught really, really on and was a total fucking fuckwit. And couldn't get it right, basically. Oh, fucking fuck with. <laughs> so, um, on the 14th of July, 1967, the verdict was declared, and he was guilty and sentenced to death. And the sentence was carried out on the 16th of May, 1968. Bye, Felicia. I will also say, when asked in an interview whether he was aware of, like, the gravity of what he'd done, Carol decided to present his moral standards. Because clearly he was a very strong, moral young man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. According to him, what determines moral appropriateness of human actions is the fact that they bring an individual satisfaction and a sense of fulfilled duty. He therefore considered himself a murderer, but not an evil person. Whatever, Carol. Shut up, Carol. Shut up, Carol. You're the worst. You are the worst. Um, Can I also just say, I mm -hmm. absolutely got the episode number wrong because I forgot England was episode one and then part two so italy is episode two isn't it 
Yes. Because then Japan was three, so therefore Poland is four. Okay. So if you want to listen to more of these episodes... Episode two is Italy, and episode four is Poland. Yeah, please do give us a listen. Um, Yeah, the premise of our podcast is each week we pick a new country and we tell each other stories of murder murder. from those countries and also give you some fun hotspots, should you ever want to visit. Do you remember any of yours from... I actually remember one from Italy. One was the Crime Museum, which is where Leonardo Cianciulli's... uh, What are they called? uh, the things she used to murder her victims with basically are in that museum that you can go look at. It's like the pot that she cooked the, the yes. tea cakes in. <laughs> so um, you can find us at NRWM Podcast on Twitter. You can find us at Nothing Rhymes With Murder on Instagram and Facebook. Um, yeah, check us out, Nothing Rhymes With Murder on iTunes or your podcasting app of choice. Yes. We would love to have you. And thank you again for Ariel for having us. Yeah, Amazing thanks, as always. Yes. And uh, as always, kids, remember, life is a journey. Don't let murder stop you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Thanks for having us. See you soon. Bye. Thank you so much, ladies. I have just so many questions about those tea cakes. When I hear the word tea cake, I'm not picturing something where human meat would easily blend in or be camouflaged. So I really need to know what the recipe was that people were just keeping eating these (laughs) and not noticing the um, hunks of human flesh. Please tell me. Next, we have a submission from the lovely Roseanne from California Dreamin'. Hi, this is Roseanne from the California Dreaming podcast. I was so graciously invited by your host, Ariel, to talk about a serial killer for her special episode. So, Here goes. In the summer of 1985, I was 10 years old, living in a suburban area of Southern California, very close to where Los Angeles County meets Orange County. I was just about to begin sixth grade. Summers were always pretty fun and uneventful. There were lots of kids in the neighborhood. Every other house on the cul-de-sac had a pool. We liked to go swimming or we played ball in the street or we'd ride our bikes to go places. The days were long and the evenings were warm, so when we'd part ways with our friends for the day, I'd usually just go home, have dinner, hang out in my room by myself. I mentioned some time ago that I'm an only child, so I spend a lot of time alone. I maybe watch TV or maybe talk on the phone, maybe play some Atari, but I'd eventually hit the sack. I can't remember, but I think I had to have the TV off by 9 p.m. I would always open my window and my room had a big window, which was next to my bed. My window was on the side of the house. There was just a straight walkway that led to the front towards the driveway. I could see our street and neighbors' houses from my window. There was nothing between me and the outside world except a screen. No bars, no fence, no walls, no side gate, just the walkway. And I never really thought anything of it until that summer of 85. There was this talk going around amongst my friends, as well as on the news, about something I had never heard of before, a serial killer. Someone everyone was calling the Night Stalker, breaking into homes, raping, and killing people. I remember that didn't sound like a true story. My friends would talk about it, and they would say stuff like, he climbs into open windows, he targets tan houses, he looks for neighborhoods near freeways. My home was like all of those things. 
Suddenly, my fun summer was turning into a frightening summer. When I lay out the timeline of the crimes committed by the Night Stalker and how close he got to where I was living, it will be easy to see how this Night Stalker was particularly terrifying in the way in which he committed his crimes. There was no modus operandi. There was no rhyme or reason in the way he went about things. He was random. He was manic. He was indiscriminate. He was unpredictable. He was an opportunist, and nobody was safe. The following is a timeline of the crimes attributed to the Night Stalker. On April 10th, 1984, nine-year-old May Luang was found murdered in a hotel basement in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. She had been raped, beaten, and stabbed to death, her body found hanging from a pipe. This is the first known killing attributed to the Night Stalker, but it wasn't linked to him until 2009 when a DNA match was finally made. On June 28, 1984, 79-year-old Janine Vincow was found murdered in her apartment in Glassell Park, California. While she slept in her bed, she was repeatedly stabbed and her throat was slashed so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. A fingerprint left on a window screen removed upon entering the house would later be identified as the fingerprint of the Night Stalker. In early 1985, two people were murdered in two separate undisclosed parts of Los Angeles. Police would later link these killings to the Night Stalker. However, the locations and dates have never been revealed. On February 25, 1985, a six-year-old Montebello girl was taken from a bus stop near school while waiting for her older sister. She later reported to police that she was carried away in a zip-up garment bag, sexually assaulted, and dropped off in the Silver Lake area. On March 11th, a nine-year-old Monterey Park boy was kidnapped from his home during the night, sexually assaulted, then left in Elysian Park near the Silver Lake area also. On March 17th, the Night Stalker attacked 22-year-old Maria Hernandez outside her home in Rosemead, California, shooting her in the face with a 22 caliber handgun as she pulled into her garage. She survived when the bullet ricocheted off the keys she was holding in her hand as she put them up to her face to protect herself. Inside the home was Maria's roommate, 34-year-old Kaylee Okazaki, who heard the gunshot and hid behind the counter when she saw the intruder enter the kitchen. When she raised her head to try and get a look at what was happening, he shot her once in the forehead, killing her immediately. On that very same day, March 17th, one hour from this home invasion in Rosemead, the Night Stalker forced 30-year-old Veronica Yu out of her car in Monterey Park and shot her twice with a 22 caliber handgun and fled the scene. Veronica was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. These two murders and a third attempted murder occurring in a single day would be the events that prompted extensive media attention to this. At this time, the media dubbed this killer, described as a curly-haired attacker with bulging eyes, wide-spaced rotting teeth, the walk-in killer, and the valley intruder. Three days later, on March 20th, an Eagle Rock, California girl was kidnapped and sexually assaulted by a man who broke into her family home during the night. On March 27th, the Night Stalker entered a home that had been previously burglarized a year earlier in Whittier, California. This is the one that was close to where I was living at the time. 
He broke in at approximately 2 in the morning. While asleep, 64-year-old Vincent Zazara was shot with a 22 caliber handgun in the head and killed. His wife, 44-year-old Maxine Zazara, who was awakened by the attack, was bound by the hands and beaten. The Night Stalker was demanding to know where she kept her valuables. While he was ransacking her home, Maxine managed to free her hands and retrieve her shotgun from under the bed. But the shotgun wasn't loaded. This infuriated the Night Stalker. Thus, he retaliated by shooting her three times with his 22 caliber. But that wasn't enough for him. He grabbed a large carving knife from the kitchen and proceeded to mutilate her body, stab her multiple times, and he gouged her eyes out and placed them in a jewelry box, which he took with him. It was at this crime scene that the footprints from a pair of Avia sneakers were left in the flower bed, which police were able to photograph and cast. This was literally the only evidence the police had at the time. The bullets found at the scene were matched to those previous crime scenes. It was then that the police realized they had a serial killer on their hands. On May 14th, the Night Stalker broke into the Monterey Park home of 66-year-old Bill Doy and his wife, 56-year-old Lillian Doy. Having taken them by surprise, the intruder shot Bill in the face with his 22 caliber pistol, just as Doy tried reaching for his own handgun. Seeing that Bill was not quite dead yet, the Night Stalker proceeded to beat him until he thought he was completely unconscious. He entered Lillian's room, bound her with thumb cuffs, and sexually assaulted her. He then ransacked the house looking for valuables. What the Night Stalker hadn't realized is Bill wasn't dead. He was able to make a 911 call that would ultimately save his wife's life. Bill would later succumb to his injuries at the hospital, but Lillian managed to survive the attack. On May 29th, the Night Stalker broke into the Monrovia, California home of sisters 84-year-old Mabel Bell and 81-year-old Florence Lang, who was an invalid and being cared for by Mabel. Having found a hammer in the kitchen, he bound and bludgeoned Florence in her bedroom, and he did the same to her sister Mabel. He then took an electrical cord to torture the women by shocking them with it. He sexually assaulted Florence and then used one of Mabel's lipsticks to draw a pentagram on her thigh, as well as on the walls of both bedrooms. They were discovered two days later by their gardener, both alive but in a comatose state. Mabel died a month later, never recovering from her injuries. On May 30th, the night stalker snuck into the Burbank home of 42-year-old Carol Kyle. Holding her at gunpoint, he bound her and her 11-year-old son with handcuffs and ransacked the house. Unable to find any valuables on his own, he put the 11-year-old in the closet, released Carol to show him where she kept her valuables, but he also sodomized her repeatedly, demanding that she not look at him, and that if she did, he would cut her eyes out. When he was done, he let the child out of the closet, bound the two of them together, and fled the scene. When Patty Higgins failed to show up for work on July 2nd, 1985, friends and co-workers became very concerned that something might be wrong or she might be sick. When a friend went over there to check on Patty, her partially clad body was discovered in the bathroom, her throat slashed. Based on the levels of decomposition, it was determined that she was murdered on either June 27th or 28th. 
It would later be determined that Patty was yet another victim of the Night Stalker, as he was tied to the scene through advances in DNA. On July 2nd, the Night Stalker randomly chose the home of his next victim, 75-year-old Mary Louise Cannon, as he was driving around. After quietly entering the home of the widowed grandmother, he found her asleep in her room. He bludgeoned her with the lamp until she was unconscious. Then he repeatedly stabbed her using a 10-inch butcher knife from her kitchen. On July 5th, the Night Stalker broke into a Sierra Madre, California home and bludgeoned 16-year-old Whitney Bennett with a tire iron as she slept in her bedroom. After failing to find a knife in the kitchen, he attempted to strangle the girl with a telephone cord, but suddenly sparks began to emanate from the cord and his victim began to breathe. He quickly fled the home, thinking that Jesus Christ had intervened to save her. The young victim survived the severe beating, but her injuries required 478 stitches to close all of the lacerations on her scalp. On July 7th, the Night Stalker broke into the home of 61-year-old Joyce Nelson, yet another home in Monterey Park. Having found her asleep on her living room sofa, he beat her to death with his fist and by kicking her in the head. A shoe print from an Avia sneaker left an imprint on her face. On that very same night, July 7th, the Night Stalker broke into the Monterey Park home of 63-year-old Sophie Dickman. She was awoken around 3.30 a.m. by what she described as a tall, skinny man dressed in black, again fitting the description of the still unidentified intruder. He pointed a gun at her, ordered her into the bathroom, and warned her to remain quiet. He ransacked the house, and then he came back and forced her into the room and onto the bed. He attempted to rape and sodomize her, but he was unable to maintain an erection. He became frustrated and humiliated and hurriedly gathered up her valuables while furiously screaming at her. She swore to him that he had everything valuable, and when she did that, he demanded that she swear to Satan. He fled the scene, sparing her life. On July 11th, more than 600 Monterey Park residents jammed into a neighborhood watch meeting extremely anxious over the recent murders and assaults in their city and neighboring communities. Police at this point were unable to connect the murders to a single suspect. On July 20th, the Night Stalker purchased a machete and headed to Glendale and randomly chose the home of 66-year-old Layla Needing and her 68-year-old husband, Maxon. He burst into the couple's bedroom while they were sleeping, hacking Maxon on the neck first with the machete. He then attempted to slash Layla, but he missed. He pulled out his 22 caliber and attempted to shoot the gun, but it jammed. As the couple begged for their lives, he was able to clear the jam and shot them both to death. He further mutilated their bodies post-mortem with the machete before robbing them of their valuables. By this time... The Night Stalker had a police scanner, so when he heard the radio call for shots fired, he fled. After fencing the stolen items from the Needings, the Night Stalker drove to Sun Valley. At approximately 4.15 in the morning, he broke into the home of, and I'm sorry if I mispronounce these names, the Kovananth family. He shot Changarong Kovananth in the head with a 25 caliber gun instantly killing him. 
I guess he ditched the twenty-two since it jammed on him last time. He then repeatedly raped some kid Covananth, beat her and sodomized her. He tied up the couple's eight-year-old son before forcing some kid to show him where they kept any valuable items, again demanding that she swear to Satan that she was not hiding anything from him. On August 6th, the Night Stalker again targeted another couple's home, 38-year-old Christopher Peterson and 27-year-old Virginia Peterson. He broke into their Northridge home by making his way through an open sliding glass door that led into the living room. As he entered, he cocked his gun, a sound which awoke Virginia, a light sleeper. She yelled at the intruder, but as he advanced towards her, he told her to shut up and shot her under the left eye. The bullet traveled through the roof of her mouth, down her throat, exiting out the back of her neck. Christopher awoke initially confused, but suddenly realized that his wife had been shot in the face. The intruder quickly shot him too in the temple, but the bullet didn't pierce Christopher's skull. He jumped up and attacked the intruder, only to be shot two more times, but both times missed. As they wrestled, Chris was flung over the intruder's back and onto the floor. The night stalker fled the home the same way he came in, and both Christopher and Virginia survived. On August 8th, the night stalker randomly chose to break into the Diamond Bar, California home of 31-year-old Elias Abawath and his wife, 27-year-old Sakina. Sometime after 2.30 in the morning, he crept into the master bedroom of the home and immediately killed Elias with a gunshot to the head with a 25 caliber handgun. He handcuffed and beat Sakina while forcing her to show him the location of all their jewelry and other valuables. He then raped and sodomized her, all the while demanding that she swear to Satan that she would not scream while he was attacking her. The couple's three-year-old, likely awoken by the attacks, entered the bedroom. The intruder tied him up too and continued his assault on Sakina. After he left, Sakina freed herself and her son and went to the neighbors for help. The Night Stalker had been following the media coverage of his crimes, so he decided to leave the Los Angeles area and headed for the San Francisco Bay Area. On August 18th, he broke into the home of 66-year-old Peter and 62-year-old Barbara Pan. Peter was immediately killed while he slept with a gunshot to his temple with a 25 caliber handgun. Barbara was beaten and raped before being shot in the head, also left for dead. The killer again used lipstick to scrawl an inverted pentagram on the wall and the words, Jack the Knife. Local police quickly surmised that Los Angeles's night soccer had made his way into their jurisdiction. Forensic examination of a bullet taken from Peter's body confirmed that it matched the bullets from the Los Angeles crime scenes. In one of the biggest missteps in the investigation into the Night Stalker killings, in order to help calm the fear spreading through the city of San Francisco, the mayor at the time, Diane Feinstein, spoke publicly about the hunt for the Night Stalker. But in doing so, she angered so many detectives and seriously compromised the investigation by giving away too many details of his crimes. She announced that authorities knew what type of firearm he was using and that they knew he wore size 11 and a half Avia sneakers. Detectives knew that a mistake like this would certainly destroy crucial evidence. And sure enough, the next morning, the Night Stalker, having watched this press conference, tossed his shoes off the Golden Gate Bridge 
He remained in the Bay Area for only a few more days, then returned to Los Angeles. On August 24th, the Night Stalker made his way to South Orange County to Mission Viejo, California. He had his first attempted break-in at the home of the Romero family, but their 13-year-old son, who wasn't asleep yet, heard a prowler outside and alerted his parents. The prowler fled, but James ran outside and was able to ascertain the color, make, and style of the car, as well as a partial license plate. The family contacted the police with the information. But the Night Stalker wasn't finished that night. He broke into the home of 30-year-old Bill Carnes and his fiancée, 29-year-old Inez Erickson. He shot Bill three times in the head and turned his attention to Inez. He told her that he was the Night Stalker and forced her to swear that she loved Satan as he beat her with his fists and bound her with neckties from the closet. After stealing whatever valuables he could find, he dragged Inez into another room and raped and sodomized her. Before he left, he told her to tell them the Night Stalker was here. Bill amazingly survived, and he eventually had two of the bullets removed from his head, and Inez was able to provide a detailed description of the assailant to police. They were also able to cast his footprint from outside their house. The car he was using, which was stolen, was located in Los Angeles on August 28th, and they were able to find a single fingerprint on the rearview mirror. Despite his attempt to wipe the car clean of evidence, he missed that one. Finally, the print was positively identified as belonging to Richard Munoz Ramirez, a 25-year-old drifter from Texas with an extensive rap sheet that included many arrests for traffic and illegal drug violations. Investigators were finally able to release a mugshot to the media. The Night Stalker was no longer nameless, and he was no longer faceless. Unaware that his ugly face was being plastered all over television and newspapers all across the state of California, Ramirez boarded a bus to Tucson, Arizona, to visit his brother. After being unable to meet up with his brother, he returned to the Los Angeles area on August 31st. He walked past officers who were staking out bus terminals in the hopes of catching the killer on an outgoing bus, not an incoming bus. He went to a nearby convenience store in East L.A., but noticed a group of elderly Hispanic women fearfully identifying him as El Matador, or the killer. Ramirez then saw his face on the newspaper rack and in a panic fled the store. He ran across the five freeway and attempted to carjack a woman, but was chased away by bystanders who began to pursue him. Ramirez hopped over several fences, attempted two more carjackings, but was subdued by a group of local residents, one of whom bashed him over the head with a metal bar. The group held him down, relentlessly beating him until the police arrived and took Ramirez into custody. And it was then yours truly was finally able to rest easy again at night in my own room and not out in the hallway outside my parents' bedroom. And thus was born my fascination with serial killers and the true crime genre. You all know how the Night Stalker story ends. On September 20th, 1989, Ramirez was convicted of 13 counts of murder, five attempted murders, 
11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. On November 7, 1989, he was sentenced to death. On his way out, he told reporters, See you in Disneyland. I'm sure Disneyland did not like that shout-out. He never made it to California's death chambers, however. And as it stands in California right now, it seems nobody ever will, actually. He died on June 7, 2013, of complications secondary to B-cell lymphoma. After more than 23 years on death row, he was 53 years old. And to you, Mr. Night Stalker, I say good riddance. You ruined a good part of my youth. I'd like to thank Ariel so much for inviting me to be a part of her serial killer episode. This is Roseanne from the California Dreaming Podcast. And until next time, sweet dreams. Thank you so much, Roseanne. Your voice is so lulling as you're discussing mutilation and murder. The last submission for this episode is by a couple of my favorite pod people, the hilarious hosts of Bloody Murder Podcast, some Aussies with some fun accents, and they will be discussing their most well-known serial killer and, in my opinion, one of the most terrifying. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. We are the hosts of Bloody Murder. But today we're going to be talking about Australian serial killer Ivan Malat for Ari on Murder Under the Midnight Sun. That's right. So let's get cracking. All right. Jump in. Get murdery. Ivan Robert Marco Malat was born on December 27th, 1944. So you have a couple of months to save up for a birthday present if you want to send him one. That's right. He is a serial killer who murdered seven tourists and hitchhikers in the 1990s in New South Wales, Australia. The killings were dubbed the Backpacker Murders. Um, Tara, did you know that he came from a family of 14 children? Yeah, 14. That's that's a hell of a lot of children. That's a lot of kids. And they were like thick as thieves. Uh, Yugoslavian background. They kept to themselves very insular. A lot of them got into trouble with the law. Yeah. Over but, the um, years. They, they were good as well at um, getting into trouble with the law together, but only having one of them take the blame. That's right. And they didn't, they didn't dob on each other either. They mm. were, well, like you said, thick as thieves. They, uh, yeah, they had a code because they were all so tight and the cops couldn't really get through that. So it all started in September 1992 when the bodies of British tourist Joanne Walters and Caroline Clark were found buried in an area known as Executioner's Drop um, and that's within the Belanglo State Forest. So right from the start, um, the authorities thought that they were probably dealing with two murderers. Why is that, Tara? Well, <laughs> that's because uh, one of the girls had been, well, she'd actually been stabbed many, many times. The remains that were found were skeletal or skeletal even. Um, so we we don't know the not, we only know about the injuries that ended up getting inflicted on the bones. So we yeah. don't know how long things took or exactly what happened. But we do know that, um, that one of them was like stabbed repeatedly and she actually had her um, spinal cord cut. So she was paralysed before, like while the attack was still ongoing. This is a little something that Malat liked to do. Um, whereas the other one was just shot from a distance, sort of used as target practice in a way. Yeah, propped up against a tree, I believe. Yeah, um, against mm. a log and then shot at from sort of like in the round um, but just with the same Ruger rifle. Um, but they're two quite different um, sort of ways of killing people, which is what led the police to think that they were working with two different murderers. Mm. 
So in October 1993, two more bodies were discovered along the same stretch of the remote Belangolo State Forest. The bodies were identified as those of 19-year-old James Gibson and Deborah Everest, also 19. Both had gone missing in 1989. It then became apparent that a serial killer had been responsible for these murders. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Do you remember that song, Runaway Train? By no. um, Soul, Soul Asylum. Because it was about runaways. And at the time these, um, these backpackers were missing in Australia, they were missing people, obviously, but they thought that they might have been runaways. And some of these victims are actually featured in the video clip. Oh, really? For, yeah, for Runaway Train. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. On November 1 the same year, a fifth body was also found, identified through dental records as Simone Schmidl, a 20-year-old uh, German national who had vanished in January 1991. Yeah, and she um, actually all of these um, the people who went missing were hitchhiking hmm. out out of Sydney um, to other destinations, festivals, things like that, or trying to hitch to Melbourne. Some of them, uh, so she was last seen setting out to to hitch a ride, uh, which is how these um, these young people ended up getting abducted because hitchhiking is very dangerous in this country. It's a no, very don't very do it. big country. More than 300 police officers conducted a search of the area in November 1993 and found two more uh, skeletons identified as the remains of 21-year-old Gabor Nugabauer and his 20-year-old girlfriend Anya Habsheed. They were both German tourists who had vanished two years previously. Um, Gabor had been shot in a similar manner to Caroline Clark, um, but Anya had actually been completely decapitated and her head was never found. Yeah, they tied her hands behind her back, blindfolded her and... Um, Cut her head off. With a sword. Yeah, in one go though, in thankfully. One go. Better than it taking a lot of <sighs> goes. I mean, it's it's not a good situation, whatever way you look at it, but still. Um, police revealed that... Um, yeah, sorry, all of the victims had either been killed by stab wounds or gunshots. Um, Anya was the only one who was actually decapitated. So the forensics they gathered revealed cartridges from a 22 Ruger rifle near Clark's body. Now, the thing is, the, the slugs that they found in their heads or in their bodies, mm-hmm. because of the decomposition, um, fluids had actually rendered them useless in a forensic value yeah. kind of way. But they did have cartridges. Yeah, they had a lot of cartridges. They had a lot of cartridges. And the, the, the marks on the cartridges said that, that, that they could only be um, produced by that Ruger rifle. Yeah, Um, So at least they were able to link them together. An examination of unsolved murders turned up the name of Diane Panaccio, a 29-year-old mother whose body had been found in bushland in 1991. Now, she'd been stabbed to death and the body had been placed face down with hands behind her back near a fallen tree, um, as had some of Malat's previous victims. Uh, It's actually believed that, that he killed more people than than the bodies that we found of the seven. Uh, it's a very large area, Belanglo State Forest. It's around 25 square miles, but it's also dense bushland and it's quite hilly. And so they, they were just, we don't have the resources to search the entire thing. Yeah, they um, tried to walk a whole line there. Oh, know, well, they did. They, they, they sort they of stuck, they stuck close to um, the, the road because they figured that they wouldn't be too far away from that. That's where they were finding this. But... The police are of the belief that there are probably more bodies out there even now. A witness, British tourist Paul Onions, told police in 1990 he accepted a lift from a driver who then produced a gun from the glove compartment of the vehicle. As he ran, the driver fired shots at him. 
Onions was able to identify the driver from police photographs and identify the vehicle, though that took a while, though, because they had lost his statement originally and it took the repeated attempts of Paul Onion to eventually get the police to listen. Yeah, because he he did tell them about it straight up when it happened. Yeah, but he was back in the UK by then. Uh, Well, then he he was reading all the press about it and so he called the the hotline and made a statement then as well. But that got lost because there was something like a million leads and it was back in, um, well, the early 90s, so they didn't have sophisticated computer systems well, to actually record all of this information well, in a nothing searchable like this, way. Nothing like this had ever happened in Australia too. Well, we'd had serial killers before. Yeah, but not over that really big distances. Yeah, and also this one was really uh, hurting Sydney in terms of the tourist dollar a bit. So that was adding a lot more pressure to the police in order to like catch whoever was doing it. Well, they ended up flying Paul Onions back to Australia and um, interviewing him. Yeah, yeah, and he was able yeah. to identify Milat from a lineup too. Because hmm. he's the only one that we know of that survived. Yeah. Yeah. So, look, thankfully, that really cracked the case open, but they were sitting on that lead for so long. Um, it's a real shame that they, they weren't able to kind of um, act on that sooner. So in May 1994, police carried out dawn raids on seven properties, taking three men into custody. One of these men was 49-year-old Ivan Milat, who was charged with armed robbery and discharging a firearm. He was later to be charged with all of the murders. Um, another was Milat's brother, Walter. During the raids, police found pieces from the 22 caliber rifle and one piece was a breech bolt. Now, they found those at Milat's place, though, not yeah. Walter's place. Yeah, so hidden Ivan's in a wall place. cavity um, wrapped in a towel or something. Yeah, yeah, in a plastic bag, yeah. So what they had to do was take the breech bolt uh, and they had a Ruger on file in their mm-hmm. library, in their weapons library, the forensics person, and um, refired it and then matched that up to that breech bolt of those twenty-two caliber cartridges. Yes, and I believe the specialist who was doing that pretty much uh, like cried and, and died and confetti shot out of his ears when he realised that it matched. It yeah. was like the ultimate piece of evidence in this case. Well, what about the other evidence they found, property of, of these these missing Oh, they uh, found so men. so many. Um, they found, I know they had Simone Schmidl's tent. Um, they had some backpacks from... Um, sleeping bags? Yeah, and sleeping bags, things like that. Um, Fishing gear, things like that. And yeah. it wasn't just Ivan who had that though. Um, one of his brothers, Walter, Walter also had some of. It was a backpack, I believe. Hmm. Um, yeah, which is a bit fishy, and also clearly links at least Ivan, if not Walter, to these cases, because it is believed that yeah, as we were saying earlier, he didn't act alone. Hmm. Well, in March 1996, the trial finally opened, and in July, he received seven life sentences, one for each of his victims. When police were looking into Milat's record, um, they they didn't find this on the computer system. They actually had to go back through hard copy stuff from 1971 and they found that he had actually been charged with rape of two different female hitchhikers. So he had a history of this in the sort same of behaviour. Yeah, right near the Blanglo State Forest. Yeah. Um, and he actually, he didn't get done for that, did he? He was acquitted for lack of evidence. Yeah. But, I mean, it... It sounds as though that was more of a technicality. His lawyer at the time, John Marsden, who uh, died in 2005, mm-hmm. uh, was the Malats lawyer for a long time, their family lawyer, because we're all in trouble. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, he was uh, on retainer for the family, right? Well, uh, he fired him during the backpacker murder trial. Mm-hmm. But uh, on his deathbed in 2005, John Marsden, he said that um, Malat was helped by his sister Shirley on uh, one of the murders. 
Um, was that the one um, of the, the British tourist, Joanne Walters and Caroline Clark? That's right. Yeah, that's what I've heard as well. His sister, Shirley, though she died in 2003, so I guess we'll never know. No, and there's so many of those Malats out there as well that, you know, trying to narrow it down. And they don't, they don't squeal on each other. Like Ivan really Milat has never admitted what he's done, nor has, has he, well, he's never admitted publicly what he's done or said why he did it or said if someone had helped him He's out. still denying it. Yeah, oh, I know he does deny it, but the, the evidence is ridiculously strong. Absolutely. We even have a witness of, of Paul Onions who nearly met the same fate as the other backpackers. And these poor people, like, they came to Australia. They're all in their early 20s or younger, and they, they were coming here for, for adventure and excitement and fun, and they completely had the opposite experience. Yeah, no, it's awful. Um, there was actually a movie uh, in 2005 that was based, loosely based on, on this case Wolf called Creek. Wolf Creek. Um, it grossed $30 million, um, um, but it's, it's pretty scary. And it's actually, when I was watching that, was when I had my very first panic attack. In the cinema? In the cinema. Oh, yeah, wow. I didn't realise what was happening. Um, and, you know, I look back fondly on my photo album, Tara's first panic attack, Wolf Creek. Yeah, it was during a scene that was pretty rapey and tortury. And I just, um, I didn't realise at the time, but I just stopped breathing. And then when we were walking, because my poor boyfriend at the time, actually he's a dick, um, but <laughs> at the time he had to leave the movie. Maybe that's why he was a dick. Um, but, yeah, it was once we walked down past the, the out of the cinema and we were walking through a food court in the shopping centre and I was just like, oh, fuck, I forgot how to breathe now. It was really scary. Your mouth wasn't full of chicken nuggets at the time? My mouth wasn't full of anything at the time, um, particularly not air. Um, but, yeah, I'm not sure quite what it was. Quite a powerful movie. What it does is it really lulls you into a false sense of security in the beginning and then it kind of comes for you later. And, uh, yeah, I don't think it's um, renowned for giving people panic attacks. I think I was just uh, lucky and the planets aligned for it to do so to me. Hmm. Uh, you know, you're saying how the, the Malats stick together. Oh, big time. Yeah, one of his nephews has just recently brought out a book of 90 uh, Ivan letters that he sent to him from uh, prison. Well, hang on. That's not how you stick together, by publishing the letters that he, he was you were sent by one of your relatives. That's yeah. the opposite of sticking together. And he's, and he's sort of, look, the book hasn't been released yet, but he, he's kind of saying this is going to shock you. So I'm kind of interested in see what it is. Ah, I'm say. definitely interested. But it also sounds like, you know... Like a bit of a bit of a an a hole move. <laughs> hey, in 2011, uh, Ivan went on a hunger strike mm-hmm. and lost 25 kilos. Oh well, it was effective because he wanted to get a PlayStation. <laughs> he wanted a PlayStation. He wanted to play GTA. Uh, okay, that's Barney's special way of saying GTA. I don't even know why he does that. GTA. GTA. Um, what about the finger? Didn't he cut off his finger? Was that oh, yes. for a PlayStation 2? No, he cut off his finger with a plastic knife and he was going to send it to the Director of Public Prosecutions and protest of his his, his uh, innocence, saying right. he's, he's innocent. Well, yeah, because like a guy that was guilty of all these murders, they wouldn't cut off their finger with a plastic knife, would they? It is That's little, a true sign of innocence. It was his little finger and uh, they couldn't reattach it apparently, so now he's, he's only got four fingers on one hand. 
Well, I think it probably would have been more interesting if it was his middle finger. Yeah, that's right. I know, but imagine <laughs> then, like, and probably in your mind you'd have, like, a ghost finger there. So you'd be trying to give people, flip the bird at people, and it'd just be nothing. You'd be just flipping the stump. You'd be flipping the stump. Actually, flipping the stump could be just as offensive. Flipping the stump's the name of my third album. <laughs> <laughs> I really like how you went acoustic on that one. Yeah, I know. It was nice, wasn't it? Hey, uh, let's talk about some other Malats. Oh, please. The Malats. They're the gift that keep on giving to this country, aren't they? In 2012, Malat's great-nephew, Matthew Malat, and his friend Cohen Klein, um, they were both aged 19 at the time of their sentencing, were sentenced to 43 years and 32 years in prison respectively for murdering their friend David Occiteloni on his 17th birthday. Um, they did it with an axe. Apparently it was a double-headed a axe A double-headed too. axe. I know. What's the, is that, does that have a word? Uh, a double-headed axe. Oh, okay. I that's, thought that was like a fancy word for that's it. That's some Viking shit. That's the sort of shit that you take to cosplay and it's made out of... I don't know if you can even get double-headed axes. I, I guess uh, you can. I guess you can. But um, that was, yeah, so that was also in the Belanglo State Forest and that actually happened in 2010. So all the boys were 17, right. not just the one that was murdered. Uh, but Matthew Malat, yeah, he struck David with the double-headed axe as Klein recorded the whole attack with a mobile phone because... I guess it's just easier for the police to arrest you if you've recorded your crimes for Mm. them. Facebook Live. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, 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 great. Matthew Malat is now live. Um, So that's pretty nutty and that he tied it all back to Belangelo as well. Like what is it this family and this forest just cursed together? Yeah. So Ivan Malat's brother Paul... This is a headline. Mm. Is this Australia's worst tenant? Oh, I don't know. There's quite a few that could qualify. Do uh, tell. Tell uh, me more. Apparently Paul Malat doesn't pay his rent, trashes houses and clashes badly with his landlords, it has been claimed. Apparently he, the, the, all the houses were left full of like um, animal feces. Mm-hmm. and Better than human feces though, isn't it? Well, I don't know. It depends what you eat. Uh, right. Well, marginally. Uh. Yeah. And what else? There was feces. I'm uh, guessing smash windows, mm-hmm. not paying a rent. Probably didn't change the light bulbs or clean the blinds. And the thing was, he changed his name, or he just used a different name to lease the properties. Mm-hmm. And they, oh, I didn't know it was Ivan Malat's relative. Sorry, yeah, that's what the landlord would say. Oh, I didn't know okay. This guy was related to Ivan Malat. Well, I mean, I guess this mm. like he wouldn't really want people to know that. It's not mm. a very trustworthy last name at this point, is it? No, Ivan's it's not. ruined it for the others, hasn't yeah. he? Yeah. Although this guy isn't doing too uh, too bad a job of ruining it for the others either. Mm. What a family, and what a story. I know, and and oh, hitchhiking. This is a bad country to hitchhike in. I don't know. Are there any countries that are good to hitchhike in? Oh, and by the way, I've done it. I've done it when I was young. It was terrifying and it was stupid, and I uh, will never do that again. Yeah, don't hitchhike. Definitely not. Hmm. Well, Barney Black out. Tara Saraband following suit. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Thank you for listening to this throwback episode. I will have a new one in just a few days. Until then, stay safe, wear your face masks, stay six feet away from all people. And uh, yeah, I hope you're all healthy and doing well. Until next time, good night.